Listener warning. This episode of Deep Cuts contains some disturbing descriptions and audio of graphic violence of a racially motivated nature. If you are not in the right mental state to process this type of content or are triggered by graphic violence or racially motivated violence, listening discretion is advised. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... George Zimmerman, a.k.a. the human piece of shit. Who is George Zimmerman? Well, he's a small-time former insurance salesman who got embroiled in one of the century's biggest race-motivated murders. He's an unrepentant asshole, bigot, and legally acquitted murderer. He has also become something of a provocateur and performance artist, whose primary goals seem to be just to inflict pain on surviving members of the victim's family and to stoke racial animus. He's also probably someone who wets the bed at night. That's not proven, though. That's just a gut instinct. Well, if anyone on either side of the George Zimmerman murder trial was hoping to see emotion out of the accused, they have been sorely disappointed. His attorney says that if he's convicted, he'll spend the rest of his life possibly behind bars. And even if he's acquitted, he might spend the rest of his life in hiding. Only a semi-free he's man. He's never been taught to be a racist. We are not racist. We don't see colors. I mean, we are colorblind. And you yourself, uh, you two are an interracial couple. We we are a a mixed race couple. Having covered George Zimmerman for almost two years, I continue to be surprised. And I'm not sure which part of this surprises me more. Do you regret that you killed Trayvon Martin? Act one, nurture or nature? George Michael Zimmerman was born on October 5th, 1983 in Manassas, Virginia. His mother, Gladys Christina Zimmerman, née Mesa, and father, Robert Zimmerman Sr., were the parents of four children, Grace, Don, Robert Jr., and George. Gladys Zimmerman was born in Peru and has some Afro-Peruvian ancestry. Robert Zimmerman is of German descent. He spent 22 years in the military and for the final decade of his career worked in the Department of Defense. Zimmerman Sr. retired in 2002 and moved to Florida. George Zimmerman was raised devotedly Catholic attending All Saints Catholic School in Manassas before going to public high school. Zimmerman remained active in Catholic Church throughout his young life, serving as an altar boy from ages 7 to 17. At the age of 14, Zimmerman set eyes on becoming a Marine. He joined the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps. According to Seminole County voter records, Zimmerman was recorded as a Democrat at the time. According to his brother, Robert Jr., Zimmerman actually voted for Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential election. I'm not a racist. I have black presidents. Literally. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into it, but they throw out every pearl-clutching stereotype of racists denying being racists that that you can think of. Obviously, since his life has taken a left turn, Zimmerman has become an outspoken critic of Obama. It's interesting how when under intense pressure, 
people feel the need to align their public persona's attributes in order to play to a larger narrative and fit into a group. After graduating from Osborne High School, Zimmerman moved to Lake Mary, Florida, a suburb of Orlando. He found work at an insurance agency. He took night classes in order to be eligible to sell insurance. In 2004, Zimmerman, an African-American friend, opened up an all-state insurance office, but it failed one year later. In 2005, Zimmerman was arrested for allegedly assaulting an undercover cop who was attempting to arrest Zimmerman's friend at a bar. The charges were ultimately dropped after Zimmerman agreed to enter an alcohol education program. What is an alcohol education program? I was thinking that too. I'm assuming it's just like, hey, maybe don't drink as much, guys. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a very like dressed up term for like he went he like I I guess I don't even know what the term for that is because it's not Alcoholics Anonymous because that's like a that's a voluntary rehabilitation program. You think it's like traffic school? Like when you get a speeding that's, well, ticket? Well, that's what I was thinking. It was like a, it was like the equivalent of traffic school. But yeah, I've, I've just never, but it's, he- I've never but it's, heard but of it, that. It's people doing like uh, dummy drinking. So they're like fake pouring shots and like trying to do three point turns or the equivalent of a three point turn, but like making beer. This is the, this is the appropriate angle to hold the cup when you pull the little lever thing. It's just like bartender training. <laughs> yeah. It's like bartender training. <laughs> He's like, Oh, I got my, I got my bartender's license now. <laughs> George, when you leave here today, it's not that you're going to ever walk into a bar again. It's that the bar. It'll always be in here. A man walks into a bar, but then he realizes that the bar walked into him. (laughs) One month later, Zimmerman's former fiance filed a restraining order against him for alleged abuse and domestic violence. From here, Zimmerman bounces around. He works at a car dealership, a mortgage audit firm, and he eventually meets Shelley Dean, the cosmetologist, in 2007. The two move into a townhome in The Retreat at Wilkes Lakes in Sanford, Florida, a cookie-cutter combination suburban living community. Think the middle-class version of a gated community. In 2009, Zimmerman enrolled in Seminole State College. He began working on an associate's degree in criminal justice. While attending community college, Zimmerman worked as an insurance underwriter. At the beginning of 2011, Zimmerman attended a citizen forum at the Sanford City Hall to protest the beating of a black homeless man by the son of a white police officer. During the meeting, Zimmerman claimed to witness disgusting behavior while attending a ride-along with local PD. Later, when questioned about this, the Sanford Police Department had no records that Zimmerman had ever participated in a police ride-along. How do you feel about that? Honestly, it's... um. This isn't something that's exclusive to George Zimmerman. This is just people in general, right? You start holding some belief and maybe that belief is what you really think. And maybe it's you're just regurgitating the things around you, right? Like Robert Kennedy staffed on Joe McCarthy's campaigns when he was a young man because he was trying to get his foot in the door. And he maybe he believed in, you know, kind of red scare conservative values, but also maybe he was just trying to get his foot in the door. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, I think maybe all... the most famous version uh, example of that is the fact that uh, the patron saint of of uh, neoconservatism, Ronald Reagan, was originally a Democrat. 
Yeah, absolutely. Or even uh, even our boy uh, Frank Sinatra, old uh, old Blue Eyes, you know, who later was known very prominently for being um, a Republican, started out like his mom was like a, you know, a, a local politician in New Jersey. And like he started out like died in the wool Democrat. And, you know, sometimes people stay on one end of the political spectrum their entire lives. And sometimes people change and grow and evolve, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't find this to be contradictory information. And I think, a, I think a lot of people would use this as like, oh, see, he wasn't racist. He did all these things. Um, I don't find it to be compelling evidence for that. I think it makes a lot of sense for the reasons that you said, but also this seems fairly consistent with his worldview, even though he was coming at it from a decidedly very different angle. And some would see it as a very polar opposite angle to what he ended up kind of becoming and talking about later on. Uh, but in either situation, it feels consistent with this, whether it's this or the whole being obsessed with neighborhood watch thing later on or any of the stuff that he said politically sort of recently. Um, it all feels consistent with not having any necessarily specific convictions one way or the other, but just in general feeling this animosity towards not necessarily towards authority. It's kind of it's kind of like an anti-authoritarian thing. It's less about being anti-authority and it's more about like looking for persecution in the world, whether it's himself being persecuted. I guess it's this fetishization of the underdog. And to me, that makes sense that you could go through your life and at certain points in your life have very contradictory viewpoints and 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 go, go on record as saying like very opposite things because it's not really motivated by the specifics. It's motivated by this general feeling of like fetishization of the underdog and that like, you know, wanting to defend the underdog or that I am the underdog and there's all these people out to get me and there's all these systems in place to, to, to oppress me and keep me down. So I can see why somebody who's obsessed with that mindset could at one moment uh, go to protest a black homeless man being beaten by police, by corrupt police. And then in the next moment, make these like blue lives matter paintings and talk about how the black lives matter movement is, are a bunch of like terrorists and things like that, because it, it, at the core of it, it's kind of the same thing. It's just like this larger mechanism is oppressing the underdog, even if that's perceived and not necessarily true. I think there's also like a, a very deep rooted relationship between right and wrong in George Zimmerman's mind. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that moral comp, I think that moral compass has been aligned and misaligned multiple times times in his life. And I think also that his dad, he seems like somebody who has a very complex relationship with his father, both in a good and bad way, because his dad in some ways is kind of everything that he seems like he aspires to be um, in terms of he's this kind of probably, you know, I don't want to say super conservative, but, you know, he's a, he's a military guy. He's been working in the system. He's trying to do, trying to contribute to the country and he's been trying to, you know, help align the country from right and wrong. And, um, you know, he's an, in air quotes, good man. You know what I mean? He's really gone out and done these things with his life. He's worked in the Department of Defense. He's done these things that are a culture exalts to a certain degree. He's had kids. He has a family. He's, he's done all these things. Yeah. So and he's, he's chasing, he's chasing that 
you know, no matter what side of it he lands on, he, he he's less he's not loyal to one position or conviction because he doesn't really have any specifically. He just wants to be the good guy. Yeah, he wants to be like his dad in that way. Yeah. And I also think and this is a very complex thing, but I think that the racial combination of his dad being a white man and his mother being Peruvian I think that I, I think that was at odds within him as as a person, you know. I th- I feel like George Zimmerman has a very specific worldview and I think that he has completely closed off aspects of his person and heritage because they haven't necessarily always fit within that worldview to a degree. And then at other points in times, I think he's used those components as means of obfuscation to camouflage very insidious and venomous character traits. Well, of course, the sort of cognitive dissonance of it makes a lot of sense. Wanting to be like a hero or wanting to feel like he is living up to having this place in the world and being important that he feels like his father is, uh, that that's very consistent with the with how sort of obsessed he became with becoming a neighborhood watch person to the point where you're really not doing this to defend your neighborhood. At a certain point, you're just going out looking for a scenario to be a hero in, which is, you know, I'm not even going to say good intention because it's not really. It's, it's, a, it's a selfishly motivated desire to be perceived as a hero that causes you to manufacture situations that you can yeah, he's, manipulate he's, he's, to be seen as a hero. He's artificially escalating potentially hazardous situations so that he can show his metal, so he can show what he's made of. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I don't even but, I don't I don't even feel like there's like a we talk about this a lot of like starting out with good intentions and then it, at some point you get lost. I think we talked about that a lot in the um, the syllable and brains episode. I, I forget what we were talking about. We were talking about that transition into darkness, but I wouldn't even assign that to this because I don't think it started out as like I just want to protect my neighborhood and then that. Went into a dark place as became his, he became more obsessed with it and he started manufacturing it. I think it was always about that. I think I think it was actually protecting anybody was never in his mind. It was this almost sociopathic desire to be perceived as a hero and by any means necessary at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, I I think the key distinction is, you know, what is the root emotion that these kind of neighborhood watch, you know, co-opt, um, you know, uh, group agriculture, you know, where, where do these people working together to achieve a, a goal, organizational things, where do they come from, right? Are they, do they come from kind of a, just a general ideal place of we're all going to look out for each other? which comes from a place of personal personal strength and personal integrity of like, I don't have to do this, but I want to do this for you, my fellow human, as opposed to uh, our boy, Georgie Zimmy Zim, racist in chief, who this all obviously comes from personal weakness. I mean, let first of all, let's be honest. He's not the racist in chief. There's No, he's not. No, he's definitely not the racist in chief, but he... Uh, is definitely someone who uh, there's just no way that if you know anything about the specifics of his story, I I just can't understand how anyone with any semblance of 
empathy or love in their heart can call him anything other than a racist. Yeah. Like the stuff that we're, we're going to get into after this coming up, this break coming up is just, it's so hideous. Yeah. It's so hideous. Well, yeah. I mean, but, so before we get into that, yeah. So going, so talking about the neighborhood watch thing, I don't want to, I don't want to make the dogmatic statement that there are no people out there involved in neighborhood watch that, uh, that, genuinely are just concerned about looking out for each other and protecting their neighborhood. I I, I don't want to go so far as to just make some blanket statement across the board. What I will say, though, and this isn't just specific to this. This is something that I think about a lot, and I've had a lot of experiences that have sort of pointed me towards this. There are certain things out there. There are certain jobs or largely, largely jobs or things like this, whatever this. It's not a job. It's just, you know, a hobby. What do you, what do you even call something like this? But there are certain things like this in this world that they have a certain purpose, but due to the nature of what they are, they tend to attract the wrong type of person to to do it because of, you know, the, the power that it gives you in that in the position or this the the scenarios that it allows you to be in and have some kind of uh, immunity from normal repercussions for certain things in. And I think that neighborhood watch is one of those types of things where in theory, it's a, it's a good idea, but I think in execution, it probably attracts the type of person who has this idealized fetishized idea, uh, like this, this fetishized fantasy of taking down bad guys and being the hero and going around and being a badass. And that's just, that's not like the attitude that you should have uh, going into, going into a situation like that and being tasked with that position uh, in, in, in your neighborhood is somebody who's like actively it's, it's like it's confirmation bias. You're actively seeking out situations like this because you glamorize it. And these 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 the people who who are in charge of these things should not want this to happen, and they should be avoiding it at all costs, and and taking precautions, and you know, getting properly trained to de-escalate situations and things like that. But they're not trained; they're just a bunch of fucking random people being like, "We're a we're a gang of you know our neighborhood. We're the we're you know we're the fucking tombstone guys." There's no there's no regulation or or training for this. It's just a bunch of people like basically being soft vigilantes. And so, yeah, you have a lot of people who are just looking like literally looking for trouble because they just want to get into a scenario like this. And I've seen I've seen situations like this all the time. Uh, so it, it makes total sense to me. In your neighborhood is the neighborhood watch called the Doc Holidays? Yes. Whenever I walk outside, a bunch of red lasers are pointed onto my chest until I say the code word, I'm your Huckleberry. But joking aside, no, nothing ever in this neighborhood, although there's a, there's like social media sites for neighbors and they tend to be used in kind of more affluent neighborhoods. And I know it exists and I know that all of our neighbors are on it. I, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to get 50 feet near a social media site for neighbors to gossip and shit. 
uh, but I know it exists. But I've experienced some things, and this is just coming from me as a white person. These are obviously nowhere near the experiences of you know somebody like Trayvon Martin. But even I have experienced situations that tell me that people who do neighborhood watch are not necessarily in it for a, a particularly altruistic uh, goal. I remember one time I was living in Santa Cruz with some friends of mine and I had lived there. I mean, I, I hadn't lived there for long, but I lived there for a couple months and I, wa- I, I walked over to a park to meet my friends who were at this park. For some reason, they, they drove there directly from work or something like that. For some reason, I was at our house and they were there and I met them. And then on my way back, I walked back to my our apartment by myself and this guy rides up to me on a bike and he's like, hey, and I, was, I was like, hey. So what's your name? And I was like, uh, Andrew. And he's like, huh? So you live around here? And I was like, yeah, I live a couple blocks up. And he's like, huh? What, where, where do you live? And I was just like, in these apartments over at this point, I'm already, I'm just, fi- I'm like, what are you, why are you asking me these things? I'm creeped. I'm, I'm already creeped out by this. And he's like, huh? Yeah. I just, you know, what, just need to make sure. Cause, you know, I'm I'm the neighborhood watch guy around here and I just I, I like to have tabs on everything. I just didn't recognize you. And I was like, huh, cool. I can't even convey the feeling of that moment. But number one, this guy immediately creeped me out, immediately made me very nervous and paranoid and immediately just gave off this really weird vibe. Like this guy was not all there. And this and he was the leader of the neighborhood watch, or at least he said he could have been fucking lying. I think about this story a lot whenever I read about stuff like the George Zimmerman case. These people, they're not just trying to protect their community. Like these people, these are people who have like genuine, like delusions of persecution. They're paranoid. They read negative intent in ambiguous situations by default. These are just not the type of people that you want being the arbiters of what is just in the world and what's okay to be happening in your neighborhood. Uh, and I, I know that we're just getting off into a tangent of this like right away, but I, I just really want to set that up as we get into this is like, I, obviously, I'm not an expert on this. This is just my own personal worldview, my own personal perspective on this. This is, you know, a culmination of years of thinking and processing this based on a few experiences that I have, plus all of my experience reading about these stories in the news, consuming these stories, consuming the Trayvon Martin case, consuming all of the other cases of black men and women being murdered in Situations like this where they were just walking through a neighborhood and people became suspicious of them and it escalated into a deadly situation setting up for the story of what we're going to get into. I really come back to this of the the idea that like, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what the solution is, but it feels imminently dangerous that we allow people like this to be in situations like this, take on these like kind of vigilante roles and be the arbiter of what is right and wrong in these small domestic situations before a more trained authority service can become involved. I agree. In December 2011, George Zimmerman walked into graduation ceremony, despite being one credit shy of the requirements. This is another thing that is going to just ring throughout this is like sort of almost as like a B plot. He's just like a weird pathological liar. About weird, dumb shit. Yeah. Yeah, like weird, inconsequential details that no one would think twice about if he was just honest. Yeah. It's even weirder that he has lied about all this stuff because then it makes you wonder, like, what are you really covering up with the fact that you're lying about 
this other thing. His plan is that he would finish this final credit over the next semester. However, this would not come to pass. Act 2. A Late Night Walk On February 26, 2012, George Zimmerman fatally shot a 17-year-old boy named Trayvon Martin. Zimmerman was the neighborhood watch coordinator. Martin, who was not a usual resident, was staying with his father. He had wanted a late-night snack and walked to a local convenience store and bought a package of Skittles. Zimmerman, spotting Martin, started tailing him in his car. A neighbor called the police after hearing this altercation. 911, do you need police, fire, medical? Um, maybe both. I'm not sure. There's just someone screaming outside. Okay. And is it a male or a female? It sounds like a male. And you don't know why? I don't know why. I think they're yelling help, but I don't know. Just send someone quick. Okay. Does he look hurt? I can't see him. I don't want to go out there. I don't know what's going on. So They're sending. So you think he's yelling help? Yes. All right, what is your number? There's gunshots. You just heard gunshots? Yes. Yeah, and, and, and later on, I mean, as part of the, uh, the, the criminal defense, they claim that it was George Zimmerman that was yelling help and all those things, which is, once again, we're going to get into this. But of all the things, that's obviously the most blatant lie. Because there's no conjecture to that. There's no like, oh, it's a little of a bit of a gray area. If I was defending myself, they were fighting and you could you could say that there's a gray area there. But I'm not saying that I think that there's a gray area, but I'm saying that without knowing the details of it, you could argue that there's a gray area there. But definitively, it was somebody yelling help and it wasn't him. Obviously, that's an opinion, but I think it's a pretty educated guess that that was not George Zimmerman. That was a young teenager being attacked so to claim that it that it was him yelling for help is for some reason that just sticks out to me as like the most egregious lie of all of them honestly man i don't even it's just so fucked it's just so fucked like i i'm at a loss for words as to how um i agree i think it's glaringly apparent that that recording is not george zimmerman screaming for help and it's it's very sad to me it's very sad. I mean, th- th- a lot of this, this story is so horrible, but yeah. that, I, that it's very sad to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if what I'm saying, trying to say makes sense, but like, I, f- I feel like you could, you could, you could craft your own reality and believe your own bullshit to the point where you could genuinely believe that you were being attacked and that you were defending yourself. But you cannot misremember that you were the one screaming for help. And the fact that, yeah, it's, yeah, I just don't, I don't understand how anyone, I don't understand how anybody can listen to that and think that that was George Zimmerman. It's, well, the, I mean, the answer to that is that you, it's not, I don't think anybody does. I mean, I, I, they do, but it's not the, this is a bitter, this is a much bigger conversation. Like we're not going to really dig into this in this episode because it would be a whole other it's a whole other hours of discussion 
So, you know, I will lightly scratch the the crust of this, but it's it's not motivated by actual belief. It's just motivated by this is what I want to be true. And so I will believe this. I don't think anybody's listening to this and being like, huh, I genuinely based on my own, uh, you know, analysis of this. And after listening to all this evidence and, you know, weighing the options, I have come to the conclusion that I feel like this is George Zimmerman that's screaming this. It's not about that. It's just this is what I want to be true. I will I will believe anything that supports this. And I will reject anything that contradicts it. So, you know, whenever if you ever find yourself, you know, scratching your head and being like, how can people possibly believe this uh, or how can people possibly think this is true, uh, you know, for whatever for whatever consolation it can be, you know, just for your own sanity. It's not about that. It's not it, those. They are completely separate concepts. It is it is somebody accepting any claim that fits their worldview and rejecting anything that doesn't. It's not about whether they believe it or not. Police arrived on the scene two minutes later. They discovered the body of Trayvon Martin and took Zimmerman into custody. Zimmerman was treated for head injuries and questioned for five hours. He was then released due to the fact that the police said there was, in air quotes, no evidence refuting his claims of self-defense. Under Florida's Stand Your Ground statute, the police are prohibited from making any arrest when it is under self-defense. The case was picked up by local news and then spread nationwide. Protesters poured into the streets. Calls for justice and a thorough investigation overwhelmed the political system. Finally, six weeks later, Governor Rick Scott appointed a special prosecutor and Zimmerman was charged with murder. One of the things that's so dark about this is that many, many news outlets did not cover this story in the way that that anyone would have wanted honestly like it's not it's not under the guise of fair and part and like impartial coverage it's it's just it's just sucks like uh, so much of this story was made even worse by the way that the media covered it well it's the um, same it's the same way that, that any of these stories are covered it's uh, I mean, going going back to the confirmation bias, it's, you know, it's present it's presenting human beings are very easily swayed and they're very they're very easily manipulated. And that is exacerbated by the fact that our minds were not meant to absorb information in the way that we do, like, you know, Xenu or whoever created us did not. <laughs> intend for us to like watch like sit and and have like information shoved into our minds 24 hours a day by you know sitting down on a couch and turning on a box and just letting things wash over you that are shaped by you know god knows who in any given circumstance of what channel you're watching or how well researched the thing is that's being presented or whatever biases are being presented by these things. Like we're just not equipped to be able to absorb information like that. We, we our our minds just evolutionarily are not designed to receive information in that way and be discerning about what is, a, you know, fact, what is truth, what our what our personal feelings are actually on it. Uh, and and so in that way, we're very easily manipulated. So, of course, in many situations, whenever, 
the news media has a very clear bias, even if it's unintentional, even if they don't necessarily realize that they have a clear bias, but they have a bias based on societal norms of, you know, somebody who smokes weed is viewed, you know, sort of objectively from a society cultural standpoint, not anymore, really, that this is kind of oddly a thing of the past. It's been very rapidly normalized in the last couple of years. But as far back as 2012, when this was happening, smoking marijuana was still very much like this bad thing that you were a bad person for doing. Oddly enough, we're rewatching Parks and Recreation right now. And there is an episode whenever Leslie Nope is very excited about having this reunion of all of the previous Parks Department heads and people that she has like idolized as these like heroes. But then they all get together and it turns out that they're all horrible people. So the oldest guy, he's like a racist and a sexist and he keeps bringing up really sexist, misogynist things to her. And then one of the other guys, he's like doesn't care about the environment at all. He just took the job because it of the paycheck and he's like littering and things like that. And they're all terrible people. And then the other guy, his thing that makes him terrible is that he smokes weed. Like that's the thing. And it, it felt so dated to me that it was like this episode where this central plot is that she's realizing that all these heroes that she has are terrible people. And his one thing that's terrible is that he was just a hippie who smoked weed. And that was back in 2011 or 2012, not that long ago. So in that context, a lot of the coverage of it, which tends to be the coverage of any of these stories where it's a young black man or woman who is killed. It's like, you know, here's some pictures of this person smoking weed and they had an attitude. Here's like the here's a recording of them, you know, not being nice. Uh, and, and, you know, this 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 manipulation of the narrative that's all based around these completely unrelated circumstantial things that have no bearing on the case at all. Like if you're a total asshole, does that mean that you deserve to be murdered? But people can be swayed by that. People can be like, yeah, that that kid was he did have an attitude. Maybe he deserved it after all. That's insane. That makes no sense. But people allow themselves to be led by that photographs of trayvon martin looking tough flaunting an apparent fondness for marijuana and guns they paint a disturbing even dangerous picture of a troubled team but in spite of the threatening image they might project these pictures won't help the man who killed him attorneys defending george zimmerman failed to convince a judge these photos are vital in their arguments to a jury that zimmerman killed martin in self-defense a pre-trial victory for martin's family george zimmerman's trial began on june 10th 2013. on june 21st 2012 the defense attorneys released a raw video of george zimmerman reenacting the events of the Trayvon altercation. Okay. Right here, right in front of this house. Okay. Right in front of 1460? Yes, sir. Alright, and what was he, he was walking in between the buildings or? He was walking like in the grassy area, like up towards, kind of between these two poles and mm -hmm. like I said it was rainy and he wasn't, he was just leisurely looking at the house. And, uh, did he walk off from there or did he stop there last night? He stopped and he 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 like looked around and that's okay. why I, that's what threw me off was it's raining I didn't understand why somebody would be just stopping in the rain especially 
you know, it wasn't like he was trying to run to get out of the rain, and I had never seen him before. So I got out of my car and I started walking. Go ahead. Back there, they said, are you following him? And I said, yes, because I was, you know, in the area. And he said, we don't need you to do that. And I said, okay. So I, that's when I walked straight through here to get the address so that I could meet the police officer. And then when I got to right about here, he yelled from behind me to the side of me. He said, yo, you got a problem? And I turned around and I said, no, I don't have a problem, man. I looked down in my pant pocket and he said, you got a problem now. And then he was here and he punched me in the face. And I, I fell down and he pushed me down. Somehow he got on top of me. On the grass or on the snow? It was over, more over towards here. I think I was trying to push him away from me and then he got on top of me somewhere around here. That's when I started screaming for help. I started screaming, help, help, as loud as I could. Then is when he grabbed me. Oh, I, I tried to sit up, and that's when he grabbed me by the head and tried to slam my head down. And no, my body was on the grass. My head was on the cement. And I, just, I kept yelling, help, 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 as loud as I could. He put his hand on his nose, no, on my nose, and his other hand on my mouth. He said, shut the fuck up. And... Uh, then I tried squirming again because all I could think about was when he was hitting my head against it, it felt like my head was going to explode and I thought I was going to lose consciousness. So I tried to squirm so that I could get, because he, he only had a small portion of my head on the concrete. So I tried to squirm off the concrete. And when I did that, somebody here opened the door and I said, help me, help me. And they said, I'll call 911. I said, no, help me. I need help. And I don't know what they did, but uh, that's when my jacket moved up and I had my, my firearm on my right side hip. My jacket moved up and he saw it. I feel like he saw it. He looked at it and he said, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker. And he reached for it, but he reached, like I felt his arm going down to my side. And I grabbed it and I just grabbed my firearm and I shot him one time. And one of the one of the main sort of sticking points uh, in in terms of the evidence presented and the uh, you know what what was discussed in the in the in the criminal case that we're going to talk about later is the idea that based on his story that he pinned him to the ground and he was slamming his head against the concrete over and over again was that the the injuries on the back of his head head were not consistent with that at all. He had like a couple of scratches on the back of his head. But if he was slamming his head on the concrete over and over again, there would have been a lot more damage um, to the to the back of his head. And what they ended up kind of arguing in court whenever presented with, I guess they had like a whatever he was, a, a defensive wound expert or like a forensic scientist or something uh, who basically said that he didn't think that it was consistent with that. Uh, what the what the defense ended up arguing, which I think obviously ended up kind of being a successful uh, defense, was that he was trying to slam him, but he was resisting. So while he was trying to slam him down, he was actually kind of resisting against it. So he wasn't actually slamming him down with full force. He was kind of trying to and he was kind of resisting against it. Um, however, you know, watching this. I don't know whether I don't know if this was used in the court in the court case or whatever, but 
He explicitly says that he was slamming his head over and over again on the ground. And he also said that he felt like his head was going to explode, which seems to imply that he was full force slamming his head down on the ground. Thanks to the video that Zimmerman's defense put out, you know, having him do this tutorial through how to murder someone. Um, A murder unboxing. Oh, it's so awful. Donations began to pour in online. George Zimmerman gained over $200,000 in online donations in order to pay for his legal fees virtually overnight. And yet he and his wife professed to be broke and nearly destitute during the trial. One of the key pieces of evidence in the trial became the 911 call. The Zimmermans say that the person screaming for help is George. The Martins say that it's Trayvon. Going going to these these donations, this goes back to what I was saying before of, you know, people not actually believing or being convinced by any kind of evidence, but rather just having a default worldview and accepting anything that supports it and rejecting anything that doesn't. You know, all these people who and this is not the only case where this has happened. This happens all the time. These cases happen and people get a flood of donations from supporters um and this is like before the like a man is on trial for murder and we have not yet decided whether he has murdered or not and i guess yes like innocent until proven guilty so i'm not saying you know presumed guilty until cleared but no matter what the, uh, my ultimately my point is is that we have not yet determined at least in a court of law whether he is actually a cold-blooded murderer or not. And yet you have this outpour of donations from people who would just immediately support him sight unseen. And, you know, the, the most, the least charitable reading of that is that they're just openly racist and they just support this idea of like thinking that black people are at by default, you know, out committing crimes and always have ill intent and that this person definitely was guilty of something and deserved to be killed. And the 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 most charitable um, reading of this is just that these people all have a worldview that you should be able to, you know, stand your ground. You should be able to open carry and defend yourself and that any challenge of that any insinuation that that is murder or that you've done something wrong in that scenario is immediately wrong and immediately something that you should fight against. So, like I said, worst case scenario is just openly racist people. Best case scenario is it's people who view a kid being murdered as a hypothetical, uh, like a logic problem, like a logic problem that, you know, that is representative of their civil liberties. And the thing that also we didn't really touch on after we watched that video is that there is no way that Trayvon Martin said, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's hundred percent. There's no way. And I also don't think that he attacked him. I don't think that that does not, that doesn't pass mustard for me that he just like ran up to a dude and started punching him. Because maybe he thought that Zimmerman was looking for some sort of weapon in his pocket. No, I don't think so. Yeah, you 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 run away. Yep. You. Yeah, I don't think so. 
saying I, that you're gonna you're gonna die tonight, motherfucker, is like bad dialogue from a dirty Harry movie. Yeah, it's it, yeah. Like people don't people don't talk like that. I I, I think in you know. Also, in the recording that we have, if you don't think it is Trayvon Martin, someone is yelling, help, help, help. And then there's there's no space for someone to say, like, we could play the recording right now, but there's no there's no space for someone to say, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker, before that. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't. That gunshot goes off. They weren't sitting there having a conversation. They were, you know, in the recording, there's somebody who is just screaming over and over again for help. Also, the, these these cries for help are not the cries of somebody who is just trying to get people's attention. These are the you, you, you. I mean, listen to the recording. These are not like somebody just trying to get somebody to like. I mean, yes, they are calling for help for people. They're trying to get support, but it, these are not just the the cries of somebody who's trying to get people's attention. This is these are the like the existential cries of terror of somebody who is pretty sure that they're about to be killed. On Pierce Morgan, Robert Zimmerman Jr. says that the recorded screams from the neighbor's 911 call emphatically are George Zimmerman's voice. The Martins say it's Trayvon. Who is screaming there, Robert? That's my brother. How can you be so sure? Because Trayvon's family are equally adamant it is their boy. You know, um, that's a very sensitive thing to talk about. I don't blame them for being as equally adamant. I don't blame anybody whose family member um, they believe or perceive that they hear on the tape for being as equally adamant. Uh, I would expect nothing less, actually. Um, I know that that's George. I know that one of the, the saddest things for him in this whole thing was that despite those screams, uh, no one came to his, to his aid. Uh, those screams could have avoided, you know, what eventually uh, George had to do to defend his life. If someone had, you know, heard them uh, come out, shine, shone a light on the situation, said, get out of here, what are you guys doing? Um, because of, of that pain that he felt in particular, that he was screaming out so many times, uh, I know that that's his voice. It sounds just like my voice. I mean, it, he's my brother. That's what I sound like if I if I yell. I guess ultimately, you know, there, there, there are things that I definitely believe uh given all of the information and you know my best attempt at sort of armchair detective work or whatever um but and in the and there's and those things are that that to me at my core i listen to that 911 recording and i hear a terrified child who feels like they're going to be killed um but on top of that, and this is this is some this is something you know that I, that I believe in a lot of situations, and and it goes back to what we were talking about before with that news packet of being like he smoked weed and he was here's a picture of him looking tough. These unimportant, unrelated things that really have nothing to do with the the situation at all. They're, it's just character assassination, basically. To sort of expound on that, ultimately. Like, yes, hypothetically, which I don't believe this happened, but hypothetically, if he did try to take his gun from him and try to kill him, then, you know, yeah, sure. Self-defense. I don't believe that happened. But aside from that, which I don't think happened at all, even if the worst case scenario, even if Trayvon Martin was doing something suspicious, even if he was like 
casing a house to rob it or whatever, even if he was doing that, that is not a reason to die. That is not that is not grounds for being killed. It's interesting to me how the kind of like eddies of this current form as they're going through the process of attempting to discern what happened when, because so many of the in air quotes facts don't line up like things, not that not the firsthand account from Zimmerman, but the fact in that at the end of that clip, you see security camera footage of Zimmerman being brought into the um, Florida County police office and he's in handcuffs and his face is fine. Like maybe his nose might be swollen. Okay. But it's more or less fine. Oh yeah. Those, those bandages on the back of his head during that reenactment are like, that's pure kayfabe. That is like, that is those, those huge exaggerated bandages on the back of his head. Yeah. They're completely fake because in the, in the surveillance footage, he turns around and you can see the back of his head. There's no blood. There's no, need for any bandages like it's just completely just like a normal guy like he doesn't look like he's in pain he's just kind of he kind of steps out of the car the squad car and then he talks to a couple of the officers and then they kind of lead him away to quite you know obviously for questioning but then there's no like fuck bro i might have a concussion there's there's none of that like it's and i'm i'm perversely fascinated by his family's reaction to it almost to the same thing that you're saying where it's it is this kind of reverse kayfabe or inverted kayfabe where people make a worldview and then they align everything to fit within that box Mm -hmm. um which is why which is why you can't show people like that evidence and then have them like go oh i see because that's it's never that's never going to happen no matter how much you think like oh if i only could just explain this to them there's information that they're missing and then they would get it that's never going to happen because it's not about that it's their actual belief in these specific things is not actually a factor it's it's a it's a worldview and then they selectively uh accept and reject things to cater to it and so no matter what you explain to somebody they will rationalize it and reject it in some way yeah there's a disorder called apothenia where people see unrelated data sets or unrelated groups of facts and then they artificially draw interconnected webs of connections between those facts in order to facilitate a worldview or a conspiracy theory or some sort of identity based off of that. And that's kind of what we're talking about. It's usually attributed to like, I think the World Trade Center terrorist attack was actually spawned by the chain reaction of events that led from Sirhan Sirhan's supposed assassination of Robert Kennedy, which then led to that. You know, it's this these completely different and disparate pieces of information that people cobble together in order to fit into a single narrative. That's kind of what we're touching on. Save it for, um, save it for the QAnon episode. Yeah. For real. Another piece of evidence is Trayvon Martin's girlfriend, Rachel Gentel, who was on the phone with him during his final moments. Are you claiming in any way that you don't understand English? 
I understand you. Zimmerman's legal team tried to hack away at her credibility. You said that it could have been, for all you know, Trayvon Martin smashing George Zimmerman in the face is what you actually heard. What? Yeah, just earlier today. By who? By you. And you ain't get that from me? And in a jarring exchange, defense attorney Don West accused the 19-year-old of lying about a letter she says she wrote to Martin's mother, explaining what she saw that night. You didn't even tell the prosecutor about it? No. West asked her to read the letter, which she had a friend help her write. She could not. Are you unable to read that at all? Some of them, I do not. Can you read any of the words on it? I don't understand. Um, curses. I don't read curses. Man, this is just so depressing. I it it's it's just so fucked up. It's so fucked up. I. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, obviously, uh, obviously, things are not perfect now. But uh, I still think that this case would have gone down a lot differently if it had happened now. And I don't even necessarily think I'm not even saying that it would have, you know, ended with a conviction. Uh, but but certainly, you know, like, you know, this is this is 2012. And th this is the kind of shit that was being shown in the news. Like this is this is this feels barbaric by even today's standards. Part of it does. And another part of me is like, I don't know, man. I mean, the way everything has spun out of the George Floyd protests is directly descendant from this horrible trial and the verdict that came out of it. Yeah. I but mean, I don't I don't know that I think that we've really progressed that much further. I wish that we had, but I, I don't know that I do. I can't quantify how much further and whether it's. A significant amount or not. But what I do feel pretty confident in saying is that some of these things that were sort of pulled in this criminal case would not be allowed to slip by without a large national conversation happening about them. And I think that the national conversation was had about them at the time, but that the the court of public opinion had not swayed quite far enough in a progressive direction to where that litigation of some of these things was a loud enough voice to be taken seriously. Whereas I think now it would be taken a little bit more seriously. I hope so. But also those fucking cops who killed Breonna Taylor still aren't arrested. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, 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 I just, I keep repeating that we're definitely not, out of the woods and there's obviously i mean if anything this year has just shown like oh fuck like things are a lot worse than everybody allowed themselves to believe but i but i do think that if nothing else the uh the voice for these people is being heard a little louder basically during the court case they you know the uh, the defense attorneys work diligently to pull apart her story and to make her seem like an unreliable narrator um and here's an audio clip of her admitting to lying. The funeral? Why I go to the viewing? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to see the body. Mm -hmm. I did agree with my friends that I was going to go. You gotta understand. 
in order you got to understand mm -hmm. did, you, you the last person talk to the person mm -hmm. and he died on the phone after you talk to him you got to understand what I'm trying to tell you I'm the last person you don't know how I felt you think I really want to go see the body after I just talked to him I understand what you're saying, but what you did instead was instead of saying... I did not even know he was out. I did not even watch the news. I don't watch the news. I heard there was on the media. There was on local news. I did not know about that. Okay. I knew that it was emotionally difficult for you to decide whether or not to go to the memorial service. Yes. And you decided not to. Oh. Sure. And then what you did in order to explain that to Ms. Fulton and then to Mr. Delarianda under oath was that you created a lie and said that you'd gone to the hospital. Yes. So when you told Ms. Fulton what, would, what was happening on this March 19th meeting, you told her that you'd gone, gone to the hospital. And that's why you didn't go to the, to yes. the funeral. Yes. And then you gave her the letter? I gave her the letter. And had you agreed at that point to be interviewed by her attorney? Yes. And was your purpose at that point to do what you could do to assist so that George Zimmerman got arrested? Yes. And what you did then was you had a recorded telephone interview with the family attorney? Yes. You were supposed to see them in person, is that right? Yes. But you didn't go, or they changed the plan, or why didn't you see them in person? They agreed they'll be, it would be better for them on the phone. Who, who agreed? First, it's supposed to be in person, that's what she told me. Me somewhere else in place. First she told me and was about, I was about to meet to go to my friend's house. And where were you supposed to meet them to have I don't, the, I don't remember. I don't remember. Was it at a house? No. Was it at a studio? I don't remember where. They basically, they have this point where in the, in the, in the trial where, you know, she's the refuting witness against George Zimmerman, and she is kind of pulled apart, A, because she's obviously someone who's undergone this horrific tragedy, and B, because she's not someone who's particularly verbal, verbally nimble or comfortable in, in a setting where you're publicly speaking. Yeah, exploiting the fact that she's not particularly articulate, and also, you know, she's like a child. She's, a, she, you know what, she's 17. She's a kid. Like... She's being spoken to like she's a grown woman. And I, and I think people are sort of perceiving her that way. I don't think anybody is really looking at this and being like, this, like this, this is like a little, this is a kid. Yeah. And they, and they, they, you know, use these conflicting stories where she, or not conflicting stories, but um, conflicting motivations where it's like, well, why did you do this with when you said you did that? And why did you lie about this when you said you were going to do that? And not that I'm defending lying under oath, but I think it definitely, it has a bearing on this story that 
the one person who's honest about when they've made mistruths and misstatements is dragged through the mud. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, the people the people who are blatantly lying are not even held to the, to a remotely same standard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously it's obviously an unfortunate gotcha moment to, you know, get this person to admit to these lies and inconsistencies that they've told. And in the eyes of many, this is damning it's like oh she can't nothing she says can be trusted because she's lying about this what else is she lying about um and that's obviously what they were that's their strategy that's exactly what they were doing um but you know it's it is it, it it's it's strategic character assassination because you know like like you said not like i understand that it's kind of a bad look and i understand and i'm not defending lying under oath but making up a, a lie about like why you didn't go to a funeral. I don't, I don't see that how that's relevant to the validity of her story about the actual event that happened that she didn't want to go to a funeral. So she made up a lie about why she wasn't going like who, who like, it's so weird how people compartmentalize these things because who doesn't make up lies to get out of things every day of their lives who doesn't do that yeah that's why there's the term white lie right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it's it's also just so glaringly apparent that the defense attorneys are just morally reprehensible people like they just suck that marco mara guy is just awful like asking her if can she read like what? Yeah. And it's, like, you know, again, you it's, know, it, it also, it's leading character assassination. That's the whole, you know, that whole that whole thing we just listened to. Yeah. And I mean, it's also it's on it's a very unfortunate, bad bounce of the ball that the person that she enlisted to help her write down her recollections wrote it in cursive. Yeah. Like that sucks. That also doesn't mean that those recollections are in empirically fabricated just means that if only someone had been like can you read this <laughs> in a, in a you... scenario where in a scenario where people want to distrust you um and are uh, openly skeptical of, of you by default uh you have to be airtight and flawlessly give them nothing to complain about or or uh you know you know gotcha with and unfortunately, that didn't happen in this situation. Yeah, here's a here's a nightline recap uh, of the timeline of the trial. The law talks about accountability and responsibility for one's actions. The fiery prosecutor urging the jury to find Zimmerman guilty. You rely on your God-given common sense. Suggesting Zimmerman lied about screaming for help that night. Why, why, why isn't it muffled down? Why, why is he able to yell if the defendant claims the victim was... How's he, how's he going to talk? Or is he lying about that? It was an emotional and at times theatrical performance by the prosecutor. Oh, he's skipping away. La, la, la. That's what he's claiming. But over the top for some court watchers, including the man who defended Casey Anthony. What did you make of the prosecution's closing argument? 
I thought it was poorly presented. I, I, I think that uh, Bernie de la Rionde is a better lawyer than that. He relied on his recollection of the inconsistencies as opposed to pointing them out and spoon-feeding the jury for that. During his three-hour closing, De La Rionda used Back of his head. PowerPoint slides, this faux mannequin, and Zimmerman's own words oh, I'm sorry. Back there, they said, Are to try to convince the jury that Zimmerman went after Trayvon Martin simply because of the way he looked. When he profiled a 17-year-old boy, that had Skittles. He automatically assumed that Trayvon Martin was a criminal. And that's why we're here. He ripped into Zimmerman's credibility. Do you believe that there's an innocent man sitting over there right now? And again showed jurors those pictures of Martin's dead body. This is one of the last photos that will ever be taken. of Trayvon Martin. And that is true because of the actions of one individual, the man before you, the defendant, George Zimmerman. Do you think he did a disservice to Trayvon Martin? I think Trayvon Martin deserved more. I, I think uh, the people of the state of Florida and, and the victim, Trayvon Martin, should have had a clear-cut presentation of the evidence that came out in this case. The inconsistencies spoon-fed to them laid out in some way other than sarcasm. Earlier in the day, Judge Deborah Nelson heard arguments from both sides for what charges the jury would be allowed to consider. The information uh, alleges that the defendant shot and killed the victim, that the victim was under the age of 18. Uh, and child abuse must be, according to the third-degree felony murder uh, instruction, defined. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just when I thought this case couldn't get any more bizarre, the state is seeking third-degree murder based on child abuse? Is the court going to give this any serious contention or consideration? Because if so, we have a lot of talking to do. Manslaughter was an expected lesser charge. Third-degree murder was not. This is outrageous. It's outrageous that the state would seek to do this at this time in this case. Ultimately, the judge ruled that the jury would be allowed to consider the lesser charge of manslaughter in addition to the charge of second-degree murder. Even if he is convicted of the lesser charge, Zimmerman could spend up to 30 years in prison. A continuation of tensions between West and Judge Nelson. The state is seeking this instruction as part of a larger scheme, another trick that the state is seeking because... I don't hear the word trick anymore in regards to these arguments, please. Earlier this week, West complained bitterly about the marathon hours both sides have been forced to keep in court. I'm not physically able to keep up this pace much longer. It's 10 o'clock at night. We started this morning. We've had full days every day. Weekends, depositions at night. West also objecting to the judge's continued insistence that George Zimmerman answer the questions of whether or not he would take the stand. I, I object to that question. I think that's Mr. Overruled. The court is entitled to inquire of Mr. Zimmerman's determination as to whether or not he wants to testify. Mr. Zimmerman, have you made a decision as to whether or not you want to testify in this case? No, not at this time. The jury was instructed to consider the charges of manslaughter, which carried a sentence of up to 30 years, second-degree murder, which carried a sentence of 25 to life, 
and the prosecution attempted to go for child abuse, but it didn't stick. Between the shooting and the beginning of the trial, George Zimmerman gained roughly 125 pounds. He almost looks like a completely different person yeah, during the trial. It's, it's, it's shocking. It's also, I, it's, uh, watching, watching the, watching this footage and sort of digging into the, digging deep into the court trial. I mean, I think about this a lot, but the idea of the criminal justice system is so, is so strange. Um, how, sort of performative it is like with the way that the lawyers appeal to the jury and the way that they go through their 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 depositions it's so it's so performative it's so based on it's not really as based on data or evidence or facts as it is to sort of social appeal and sort of swaying people with emotional uh emotional arguments and emotional uh sort of visual imagery and but also simultaneously how kind of this this weird structure of of rules almost like almost like it's kind of like almost like a game like the whole thing of like you know objection compound question leading the witness and how there's all these stipulations and like little things that you can do. It's, it's such a, it's such a fascinating system um, that obviously something has to exist, but it, but it's so strange. I mean, to go back to, you know, what we talked, what you were just talking about with like the fact that the defense attorneys are just, you know, pieces of human garbage. I agree, but also by law, somebody has to defend this guy. So, it's like th- these people have to exist for the system to exist. It's it's so it's so strange and uncanny to me. Yeah, the whole time that I was watching that video, I was thinking about the suits that George Zim- George Zimmerman was wearing, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about how how well they fit him, despite the fact that he's you know close to a three hundred pound man at this point. He's not a tall guy, well, which he, means that that's- prior to prior to going into this trial. He had to go have suits either made or bought and tailored for himself. And that just makes me think about, like, what did he do? Did he go to, like, big and tall and, like, get a suit, get five suits, knowing that these this might be the last thing he does as he, like, goes out and buys the suit that he's going to wear to this trial and then, like, goes and sits in his car and eats McDonald's? Like, it's well, just so bizarre. I I mean, I think I mean, I think yes, he did do that, but I, but I also don't think it was necessarily his idea. I think it was probably part of his his defense team's coaching. I think I I like going back to the thing about um the criminal justice proceedings being performative. Um his as as the as the um as the defendant, his role is also performative. Everything that he does is part of a performance. Um, that's meant to sway people's um, opinion uh, one way or the other. Uh, famously, during the tr- the criminal trial for the Menendez brothers for murdering their parents, their um, one one of their one of their defense lawyers instructed them to wear sweatshirts uh, like like large 
fitting sweatshirts. And whenever she would refer to them, she always referred to them as the boys. And the specific tactic that she, that she was going for was trying to make them seem like kids, even though they were well into their 20s. Um, they were they were by any stretch of the imagination grown adults. But she was trying to craft this narrative and this and this perception that they were young boys um, by making them dress like young boys and kind of referring to them as young boys and try to create this image that they were these innocent kids, which fed into the defense that they had been uh, sexually abused by their parents. And that was why that why they killed them. Um, and, and you know, the George Zimmerman case reminds me of that where, yes, he's wearing he's wearing these perfectly crafted suits that fit him well and just make him look very presentable and very proper. And, you know, his demeanor in the trial is clearly coached. He's been coached to be very, uh, very timid and kind of, uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, very, very, very deferential and very demure and kind of seeming like a very, uh, you know, a very introverted, very, you know, frail and timid person to craft this idea that like, oh, this this person couldn't be capable of a violent murder. Look how look how sheepish he is and look how sort of sitting there with his hands, you know, you know, cl- clasped together in his lap and looking around with these wide eyes and, you know, he that's clearly coached because we know that that's not him. We know we know from, uh, you know, one of the details that kind of gets left out of of the whole narrative and I think definitely got left out, def- definitely got left out of the court trial is right before he did this right before this happened right before he killed Trayvon Martin he had separated from his wife because she was uh, fed up with his anger problem and his violent outbursts and so she went and and stayed at her sisters or friends or something like that she she was living away from him and uh, because she because she was growing concerned and tired of his violent rage. And um, that happened days before he killed Trayvon Martin. And now in years later, we've seen all these new things that have happened uh, where he's, you know, sort of had these violent outbursts and, you know, been accused of domestic violence and all these things. Um, So, you know, you know that that person in those videos that's sitting there during that court trial, like that's not him. That is a carefully constructed facade coached by his defense team. On July 13th, 2013, George Zimmerman was acquitted on both counts. When interviewed after the fact, he refused to admit that he regrets any of the proceedings. Do you regret that you killed Trayvon Martin? Unfortunately, the Department of Justice is conducting a civil rights investigation. So those are the types of questions that because of the investigation, I have to tread lightly and I can't answer them. We checked and the Department of Justice is investigating any civil rights violations, but says charges aren't expected. Still, Zimmerman's reluctance seems to be about more than legalities. Do you regret that night? Do you have regrets about it? Certainly, I think about that night and I think I my life would be tremendously 
easier if I had stayed home. If you could go back, you would have stayed home that night? Certainly, yes. In hindsight, absolutely. And now, as a point of clarification, you said my life would be so much easier. When you say I wish I had stayed home that night, are you thinking about you and also Trayvon Martin? Uh, certainly, I think about them, uh, him. I, I think about my family, um, all the families that have been put in any type of dangerous situation. Um, so yes, I think about everybody involved. But safe to say, if you could change how that night came out, you would both be alive today? I think that's just a different way of rephrasing it. If you could go back and do it again, you had said you would have stayed home that night. I would night. stay home. So that both of you would still be alive today? Uh, that's a presumption I can't make. I don't know what would have happened. I, I could have gotten in a car accident when I left, you know. But, so. but you wouldn't have wound up killing Trayvon Martin if you had your way? He probably wouldn't have ended up attacking me. Either. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's trying to kind of dance around the subject and articulate it in a way that he feels comfortable with but you know whenever you're that reluctant to just say the plain and simple straightforward version um you know it's it's pretty obvious that you don't actually care you you and, and also he doesn't he said like this is a lie because in in other interviews um he just he literally says the opposite uh, do, you, do you have the the sean hannity uh interview on this uh, I don't remember. There's a different interview. Um, I, I think it, I think it, I don't know if it came before or after, but he literally says he's being interviewed by Sean Hannity. Obviously the tone of this interview and the, and the questions are kind of going for a very different result from Sean Hannity on Fox news than Andrew Cuomo on CNN. But he asks him the same question and he literally says he does not regret it. He thinks that what happened was God's plan and that he would do it the same if like literally like literally the opposite of what he's saying in this. Act three, the existential horror of American life. After the trial ended, George and Shelley Zimmerman got an RV and moved out into the woods. They kept weapons on them and prepared for an assault that never came. Prosecutors say the couple used a code language to try to keep their conversations about their finances from authorities. For example, calling PayPal Peter Pan. While in jail, Shelley helped keep track of how much money was in George's account. Okay, so total everything. How much are we looking at? Um, like $155. Prosecutors say that's code for $155,000. But only days later, Shelly was leading poverty. Now you all have no money, is that correct? To my knowledge, that's correct. Were you under any pressure from anyone? George, Mr. O'Mara, his team, to lie? I'm not going to go into that right now. Wednesday, in the same courthouse where her husband was acquitted, Shelley pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor perjury charge. You know, I can rationalize a lot of, of reasons for, for why I was misleading. Um, but the truth is that I, I knew 
that I was lying. She's been sentenced to one year probation and 100 hours of community service. I answered to a higher power and I could not um, live with myself if I didn't just completely come clean. We the jury find George Zimmerman not guilty. Yet even though she was there as her husband's verdict was read, George was not in court when she made her plea. Now we're getting a closer look into their relationship, a hint that the couple's marriage may be in trouble. Did you want him to be in court to support you? I always want my husband's support. Answer to a higher power. The fuck, fucking CEO of Hebrew National. <laughs> God, God is fuck. God is like, commit perjury. It is my will. Like, what the fuck? What what kind of answer is that? It's fucking bullshit. It's so bullshit. You think about these these people that are complicit in these situations. And like she went through all this, she lied, she supported this guy um, throughout this whole thing. And at the end of it, didn't end well for her in terms of, you know, she didn't she didn't stay with this guy. And you got to think about those people and just think like, man, like, do they just feel so fucking foolish for being complicit in this thing? And at the end of it, when all is said and done, it wasn't worth it. I don't even know how to comprehend that. I really don't know what it, I don't know what it would be like, not only to be, I think it's almost worse if you're not the actual subject of a situation like this, but you're one rung removed because your agency is just so incredibly diminished. Mm -hmm. Your personal control over the situation, you're not being punished for something you did and you're not being sucked into some, you're being sucked into something that's greater than you. There's this negative vortex, a gravitational pull of just kind of this, this nexus of trauma sucking everything inside of it and being one rung removed almost, almost makes it worse. But maybe it doesn't. I don't know. It's really, it really makes me sad, man. Like everything that's happening in the country right now and, I just, it's just existentially very tormenting to me. I really am upset by, <laughs> I'm upset by this, this story. I'm upset by all the trauma. I'm upset by how much this stuff seems to just never go away. <laughs> it's just, it's very, very upsetting to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, this was kind of, this was, this was kind of my, my concern with, with doing this episode in, in, in the first place was, how how interesting can it be to just say this is fucked up over and over again? This person is a piece of shit. Like there's 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 you know my 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 concern was like what are we gonna what what interesting thing can we say about this other than just be like just kind of sitting in disbelief and just being like how the fuck can uh, people be this barbaric to each other? Um, yeah, and I, and I, I, I think we've navigated that decently, but. But but it still remains the truth that you look at this and the only thing you can it, you just you just become on this feedback loop of like of of disbelief and and horror and um not disbelief I I I think I think uh, this is not shocking it's I I think that's the I think that's the way that p- people tend to define it because that feels like the right thing to say is like I can't believe this but I I can totally believe this this is this is 
how everything is. This is how it's always been. Um, we, we see we see stories like this all the time. Uh, this is not shocking. This is not something that leaves you in disbelief. It leaves it leaves you. I think the more the more apt description is it just like leaves you in a like a numb state. It's like you just you're just numb and like it's so horrifying that yeah, it really is. What, whatever the degree, like whoever you are in this situation, I don't care if you were the most vile person in the scenario, George Zimmerman or any of these people are complicit, or if you were like the most closest to uh, virtuous in the scenario, the prosecution or you know, the people who thought that George Zimmerman was the murderer and they, you know, they and the people who tried to come onto the stand and give their eyewitness accounts and def- and, and uh, you know, help the jury decide that he was guilty. And all the, like whoever whoever you were in this scenario, this scenario as a whole, as a macro concept is just it's it's horrifying how barbaric the human beings treat each other and and the the horrific things that people are capable of doing to make things even weirder george zimmerman didn't completely stay out of trouble in 2013 his estranged wife called the cops on him when he was purportedly threatening her father with a gun the charges were later dropped though an altercation with a man named matthew apperson which climaxed in apperson shooting at zimmerman from his truck also transpired and also, him just generally being a fuckhead on the internet really didn't help his profile diminish. And this is why his wife was so complicit. Because it's not just about her lying about the finances. That's almost the least of the bullshit. The 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 reason why she was so complicit in this and the reason why she was almost key to this being allowed to happen is what I said before. Leading up into the, the, the killing, they were separated because he had anger and violence and rage issues there was domestic abuse she was sick of it and so she left him and i guess a traumatic a traumatic situation like this can bring you back to somebody like i guess if you if you're on the verge of separating from your husband and then they get embroiled in a fucking criminal case where they're being you know char- charged with murder you i guess in some situations that might make you kind of drop your feelings and go like, oh, I need to go help them. But that's what was happening in the days leading up to him killing. And because she was supporting him and because she was complicit with him, she wasn't forthcoming about any of this stuff. And I guarantee you that if the information that he had a pre-established history of rage and violence, violent outbursts and domestic abuse had been introduced into this case, uh, I'm not I don't know if it would have necessarily gone the opposite way in terms of a conviction, but I think that would have been pretty fucking good information for them to know. However, the weirdest turn that Zimmerman's life has taken is into a dystopian blend of fine art and racism fueled political performance. In December 2013, Zimmerman began painting. Yes, that's right. Selling paintings. Well, having covered George Zimmerman for almost two years, I continue to be surprised. And I'm not sure which part of this surprises me more. One, that George Zimmerman is an artist, or two, that there apparently are people out there who are willing to bid, at least, upwards of $100,000 for his work. This is a picture, uh, well, there's the painting right now. It is a blue American flag 
um, which is an oil on canvas. It's done with house paint. And then there's George Zimmerman holding it. That photograph of George holding the artwork appeared later on the eBay site, apparently to dispel any concerns that folks might have had that this was a hoax. Robert Zimmerman has confirmed to CNN that, in fact, this is a piece of artwork that was done by George Zimmerman, but he won't say much more beyond that. It appeared yesterday, the first bid initially, 99 cents, but in less than 12 hours, that bidding had soared to over $99,000. It's right now at $99,966. Again, that is the bidding. That isn't necessarily where it is going to end, but I think many people uh, were surprised by this. Art critics that have looked at it said, yes, there is some talent there, but more than likely what's really driving the value is that it's coming from Zimmerman's supporters. I should point out that George put a note on there and it says that my artwork allows me to reflect, providing a therapeutic outlet that allows me to remain indoors. Smiley face, and of course that's a reference to the death threats that he's been under. Um, it's also likely facing more than two and a half million dollars in legal bills. If this works, you can bet there's gonna be a lot more art from George Zimmerman to come. What art critic looked at that fucking Denny's painting and said there's some talent there. So because you can't see it, just know that the painting is a monochromatic blue replication of a photograph of the American flag. That's a tracing of a, it's a stock tracing, photo. It's a tracing of a stock It looks photo. like a generic thing that you would, other than its overt political message, it's like a generic painting you'd buy in Target or something like that. Ultimately, the painting sold for $100,999. In an even more hilarious twist of fate, though, the photo that George Zimmerman traced was from Shutterstock. Zimmerman went on to produce more paintings and sell them. In January of 2014, he was asked to stop selling the painting because it had been copied from a photograph owned by the Associated Press. The painting was of a woman named Angela Corey, which was one of the prosecutors that tried Zimmerman, which is just so fucking crazy. It's so weird. It's so weird that he started painting and then couldn't even do that well because he was tracing. And then he traced the wrong thing and the Associated Press was like, that's copyright infringement, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, so bizarre. It, it, I mean, it, it just speaks to this thing that, you know, more and more is happening with, you know, at, at this this story at, at this point that we're at right now where, you know, whatever at, at a certain point he was he was a, a Democrat. He voted for Barack Obama. He seemed to have kind of expressed liberal viewpoints at certain points. I think I think maybe I think probably at, at his most extreme, he was probably like. Maybe a left ish leaning libertarian. Uh, who's obviously just still held these deeply racist beliefs. Um, but you know, whatever, wherever he landed on that spectrum, uh, he has leaned into this like hardcore conservative, like family values and one nation under God and all the, like, he's like, it's like a, it's like a wrestling character that he's adopted. Who's like, Mr. Civil Liberties Man. Mr. Civil Liberties Man who took a, an art 
appreciation course online and yeah. decided to trace some photos. I've just I've never I've never seen kayfabe used for this degree of evil. It's a perversion of of the concept. In 2015, he painted a painting in collaboration with Florida Gun Supply, a gun store that had a Muslim-free racist stance on their marketing hook. What does he paint? A Confederate flag, because of course he does. He then sells prints in order to attempt to pay for legal fees because Andy Hallinan, the owner of the store, was being taken to court by the Council on American-Islamic Relations because he was being openly bigoted and refusing Muslim Americans access to his store. He continues his habits of being a fuckhead on Twitter, but the less said about that, the better. And then, in order to drum up more publicity for himself, he goes on a signing tour, signing Skittles packets for fans. I, I, that feels like a hate crime to me. I mean, oh, Jesus. Like, it reminds me of the fact that in the 90s, after the OJ trial, at one point, OJ Simpson participated in a prank video like a like a prank VHS that you could order off of late night TV where basically the prank video was that they would set up hidden cameras in these random situations and then they would just have OJ Simpson appear in like scary scenarios where like the prank was you're walking alone at night and then OJ Simpson appears and it's scary because he's a murderer. And it was a prank video that he participated in. And he was the he was it wasn't like a OJ Simpson body double or whatever. It was OJ Simpson. And so he's participating in this prank video where the concept is we're pranking people who are scared scared because I appear because I'm scary because I was accused of decapitating two people. And it's like, is 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 this the behavior of somebody who is innocent? Like, I know it's not proof that they're guilty, but is this the behavior of somebody who's innocent? Would a truly innocent person who did not commit those crimes touch that with a 50 foot pole? Hell no. Would a person who genuinely uh shot somebody in self-defense and you know did not want to do it and did it because it was their only option fucking signed skittles packages it's like a it's like a it's an it's an openly malevolent act it's just awful it's just awful on may 11th 2016 george Zimmerman began the process of selling the gun he used to kill trayvon martin the initial site he used gunbrokers.com took the auction down. They issued a statement saying they wanted nothing to do with it. Then, Zimmerman posted it on United Gun Group. Within minutes, the site crashed due to the large amounts of traffic. Eventually, bidding commenced with people using fake names to place bids. Donald Trump and Tamir Rice were two of these aliases. Eventually, Zimmerman sold the weapon for $250,000. Oh, and by the way, going back, we, we kind of skipped over something, but going back to the guy who shot at him, he was fucking sentenced to 20 years in jail. Where's the fucking justice in that? I just, it's just. Not that I, not that I condone shooting at people, but the guy who shot at and unsuccessfully did not shoot him went to jail for 20 years. And the guy who murdered somebody got off 
scot-free. I mean, I guess not scot-free because he gets a lot of you know, people shooting at him or whatever. He has social consequences, but in terms of legally, he got off scot-free. In December of 2019, Zimmerman sued the Martin family, their attorney, and the former state prosecutors, claiming conspiracy, mishandled evidence, and faked witnesses, i.e. Trayvon Martin's girlfriend, Rachel Jeanette. Zimmerman did this because he was attempting to advance a conspiracy theory that Brittany Diamond Eugene, Rachel's half-sister, was actually Trayvon's real girlfriend, but was too frightened to testify. The lawyer that's helping Zimmerman is Larry Clayman. He's a known bigot and has started petitions to have Barack Obama deported, along with a history of suing black-owned businesses. Basically, he's a piece of shit too. Zimmerman's real motivation for the lawsuit was to generate publicity for this conspiracy theory in air quotes documentary that he's involved in, titled The Trayvon Hoax, Unmasking the Witness Fraud That Divided America. Man, he's as bad at titling documentaries as he is at being a fucking good human being. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, ultimately the ending of these episodes, you know, we we have a little kind of conclusion or a final thoughts section where we kind of talk things out and you know typically there's a nice little bow on the narrative where we kind of yeah the together the idea of attempting to do that is sounds exhausting to me yeah yeah and also i don't know how you do it i think you know the reason that we did this episode i think is is because the reason we did this episode is because george zimmerman and the trauma that he's inflicted on Trayvon Martin's parents and just the general people of America is so great. And it also, I feel like, is very germane to what's happening right now in the country. And I feel like these stories whiz by us so quickly that the details are everywhere for 15 minutes and then they evaporate. And so many of these details just feel like George Zimmerman attempting to prolong his cultural relevancy. And I felt the need to discuss them publicly because I don't know why. I think because the story is so negative and normally the, the stuff we do has a sense of kind of playfulness to it, even when it is people being traumatized or horrible things happening. Um, and, you know, there are these various themes that we've been exploring of this kind of identity of self and the uh, these outsider artists who are consumed by their work. And, you know, there, there are these various kind of tracks that we've been slotting these stories into and kind of exploring. And they're very interesting to me. But I also felt like everything that's happening right now just needed, uh, needed a, a, a greater sense of examination on how this one person's intolerance and deep-seated traumas manifested in a very negative situation that played into a much larger narrative, obviously. And I don't know that I have a good summary or a good way of ending this on some sort of, we can all learn from these mistakes because I don't know that we are, but I felt that doing this episode was important for whatever small effort that it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a, there's a learning moment um, or a 
teachable moment or whatever. I mean, I certainly don't feel qualified to, to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I, the thing that I think about the, the two, the two takeaways or the two things that I always come back to with this story and these types of things in general, uh, I think to your point, um, there's, there's kind of a, there's kind of a moral gray area or an, an ethical Schrodinger's cat of, you know, should, should we, should we give focus to these people? Uh, should, should we, um, use our platforms, whether it's us making a podcast or the 24 hour news cycle should, you know, is it right to, uh, use these platforms to put these people's names out there and, you know, bring them, you know, large amounts of attention, whether it's national attention or attention within the ecosystem of a, an audience for a podcast. And, and, and I don't know where that line is. I don't know. I, I certainly think that I certainly think that the 24 hour news cycle has contributed in a negative way to uh, the the cycle of, of trauma um, when it comes to uh, horrible people doing horrible things. Uh, I think that a lot of times in the media's desire to cover a story that dovetails into a desire to get ratings and and get awards, they'll give an unnecessary amount of attention to certain types of people that, you know, in, a, in many situations is exactly what they want to happen. And it would probably be for the better if these people were not given this focus and given this platform. Um, and I, and I don't know where that line is necessarily, but what I do think is, uh, to the point you were making earlier, uh, I, I, you know, these things that we, we talked about these, these specifics of both things that he did before, during and after. And I think some of these things that he's done after, I think probably a lot of people don't know about them. I think probably a lot of people have no idea that he's selling Skittles bags that he signed or that he's doing fucking bullshit, like faux patriotic paintings. Um, And I think that it falls maybe just on the other side of the line that... I think it's important sometimes to bring bring these things up and say, hey, this isn't just like a cartoon character that you that was part of some cultural zeitgeist for a couple months that just becomes a cultural frame of reference that you can be like, remember in 2012, that Trayvon Martin thing? That's a piece of of pop culture history that I've filed away. Um, it's to reframe that and, 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 you know, really focus on the fact that these were real human beings. They really did these specific things, whether it's Trayvon Martin or George Zimmerman. These are the details of these things. And this, this person, um, yeah, this person is not just a cultural cartoon character that kind of came into our lives and, and then left, um, and now just kind of is this frame of reference. This is a person who did some pretty horrific things that at some psycho subconscious level has affected all of us in a deep and profound way. Um, and I, and I think that it might be, like I said, I think it, I think it maybe falls a little bit on the, on one side of the line of, we shouldn't let that be forgotten. 
and we shouldn't let him kind of just fade into being this because going back to going back to OJ Simpson, this guy who most likely brutally murdered two people. Now he's just like he became a he went through this whole cycle of just becoming this joke like, oh, OJ, like, you know, making jokes about like, uh, you know, he's a that's a go to joke to make if you want to imply that somebody secretly murdered somebody and got away with it. You, you know, you go for the OJ joke or whatever. Um, and you probably really shouldn't exist in our minds in that way. He should exist in our minds as a horrible murderer. Um, and I, and I don't think that we should allow George Zimmerman to become a, a, an animated gif in our minds. Um, and the other thing that I think about a lot and it strikes me, and it's not just about things like this, it's about things in general, but, um, you know, I, this thought is maybe a little abstract and maybe sort of verbalizing it will sound very kind of cheesy or melodramatic or overwrought or something, but, um, it's hard to fathom that people can just go away and they, you know, just no longer exist. And, um, you know, the, the thing that's really hard to fathom about that is when somebody dies as much as, as much, as much as it's a tragedy at the time, um, you know, every year we get further and further away from the last time that person ever existed. And, you know, just naturally, as time goes on, no matter how much of a tragedy that was, you know, mo- most there are more there are more people who have died in the world than there are people who are living currently. And eventually they all just become this, you know, background radiation of, you know, ghosts from the past that nobody remembers anymore. Everybody who ever knew these people are also dead. They're, they 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 don't exist anymore. That there's that whole that whole st- that whole cliche or whatever about like a man dies twice when they die and then whenever people forget them um and that that's that's very that's very sad because it's going to happen to us all but it's it's so sad that for it to be for it to happen prematurely like that and for such a senseless reason that the the timetable on Trayvon Martin ceasing to exist and falling out of everybody's memory has been had has been expedited in that way um so like i said maybe this sounds cheesy or whatever but you know just an attempt of for as long as we can and in whatever way that we can contribute to this of bringing him back up and reminding everybody that this person existed and this happened to them and you know they 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 were important and they were killed senselessly and kicking the kicking the can down the road of this person being forgotten a little bit further in whatever way that we have the power to i'm dave baker and i'm andrew price this has been deep cuts it doesn't matter where you can find me on the internet Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on 